Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast. I am Al, and joining me today, Chad. How are you doing, Chad? I am doing wonderful. I'm actually just a few days away from starting vacation. Well, that's so cool. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yep, and always a good time to look forward to. And we are recording this on uh, Wednesday, August 3rd. So Gen Con starts tomorrow. So unfortunately, not able to be there. And I, I know by the time I post this podcast, it is Gen Con is going to be almost over. So for anyone listening, if you went to Gen Con, I hope you had a lot of fun. And if any of you are listening to this, uh, while Gen Con is still going on, I hope you all have a safe trip home to wherever home is. So have you ever been to Gen Con when it was in Wisconsin? or I was never at it when I was in Wisconsin. I went to it in 2007 in Indianapolis, but uh, it's big. I had a ton of fun, don't get me wrong, but it was big. Yeah, because I've been to it. I've only been to it when it was in Milwaukee. Unfortunately, have not had a chance to get to it when it, since it's been out in Indiana, but I hope to make it there eventually someday. <laughs> I'll be honest, I have found a convention that's a lot closer than uh, Indianapolis, has the same kind of atmosphere, and about a sixth of the number of people that... No, how would this go? What was it last year, 60,000 people? I'm not sure offhand, no. I don't Something know. like that, but um, Gamehole Con in Madison, last year was its third year. I went there for the first time last year. As far as guests that they have, as far as offerings, as far as games and stuff like that, and uh, convention feel, I, I really don't see a need to drive all the way to Indiana yeah. when I drive two hours to Madison. Yeah, and there's a convention down in Oshkosh in October that I always enjoy. Uh, it used to be Oshkon, but then the company that was running it decided they weren't going to do it anymore, and another company took it over, and they now call it uh, New Game of Palooza. So I don't know, Oshkon was a little more, a little catchier, but it, it, you know, New Game of Palooza or New Game—it's a little bit of a mouthful. But isn't there also this really awesome convention in the Wausau area in January? There is. There is. Really? Tell me about it. Well, let me tell you. I got actually. I, I got a few. Th- I got a little bit of a connection to it. So Evercon, which was a school-based convention, it was run and uh, organized by students um, for 16 years, they have gotten to the point where they had to either let it stagnate and eventually die out or take another step and move outside of the school system. Because believe it or not, Al, putting on a convention within a school system, there's a lot of rules and regulations and stuff that you cannot do. Oh, I'm, I'm sure there is. I mean, uh, since it isn't a school, I'm sure that they've got pretty strict standards as far as, like, you know, like, if they can do anything with weapons there. I mean, I don't know if they did, like, like LARPing, where they could let you hit each other with buffer weapons or... Yeah, no, do it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure, of course, well, I think most cons, they wouldn't, you know, if you've got, like, a, a real weapon that you would wear to, like, the, the Renaissance Fair, you couldn't bring that into a school or any other convention, obviously. Correct. And- Correct. So anyway, this, this past year after Evercon was over, there was a lot of discussions that happened, and there was a group of five of us, um, a board of directors that have taken over Evercon. And we are moving it to, instead of being a 16-hour con over a day and a half, we are becoming a full three-day con this year. We're moving out of the school into an actual convention center this year. We are bringing guests in this year, and I can actually, um, at this point, I can announce who we're bringing in. Um, we are bringing in Lloyd Metcalf. He is a artist and a game designer. Um, he game designs mostly in the uh, old school era type of games. Um, he has been doing some work with 5E, but uh, his big plan is now go back to that uh, OSR push, you know, he uh, 
So that's Lloyd. And then um, Tim Seeley. Tim is a an actual, actually, he's a Wasson native. He went to D.C. Everest High School, which is the same school my daughters go to. Um, he has done, uh, he's a comic book artist. He's done Hack and Slash. Um, right now, his big one is Revival. He's also worked for Marvel in D.C. He, uh, he draws, he writes. Um, I don't think he inks, but um, at least not professionally. So anyway, we're going to have Tim with us this year. Then we are having, um, excuse me, David McGeary. He is the uh, one of the creators of uh, that that all time favorite board game, Dungeon. Okay, cool. Well, we're gonna have him there. He's gonna come up. He's actually going to um, run his game with people at the convention, so that'll be cool. We've got Drew Hapley, who is a MIB. So if you're familiar with Steve Jackson games. He, uh, he's going to come up and he's going to run Steve Jackson in games all weekend. We're going to put him in a room and he's just going to, he's going to have Munchkin. He's going to have Car Wars. He's going to have, you know, whatever Steve Jackson you can think of. This guy knows how to play him and, and you'll have a chance to play him during, uh, Evercon. And then the big name, the big name. And, and I'm kind of proud of this one because I managed to get this guy signed up and, and, and to do this, um, is Ken Height. Do you know that name? I know it. I doesn't sound familiar. Okay, Ken Height is a game designer. He's designed right around seventy different titles. Um, he has worked on D and D. He has worked on um, Trail of Cthulhu. Um, he's worked on Knight's Black Agent. So he's going to come up, and he's actually going to run some games for the convention, and he's going to be doing some seminars. All these guys are going to be running a game of some sort or other. And uh, those are the five guys we have coming in this year. So that's pretty cool. Last year we started, Evercon started bringing in, you know, special guests. We had uh, Frank Mensner here last year, and we had um, Tim Seeley last year. So we went from two last year to five this year. That, that's a new thing. We'll see how it works out. We'll see how it shakes out. But um, we, we have... Um, in a couple days here, we will be going live for event registration so people can start, you know, signing up for running games and stuff that weekend. Pre-reg on badges are going to start pretty soon. So, yeah, we got a lot of things in the work, and a lot of it's going to hit the Internet here real soon. And anybody can go check any of this stuff out at uh, evercon.org. So, oh, cool. I, and, yeah, I appreciate the could... moment there, Al. Yeah, maybe even point. I I hope to be able to make a an appearance up there. It's just I gotta try to think of some good convention games to you know just like short events to run because one of the things that's always challenging about running games at a convention is usually you've only got about a four hour time slot. So right. you know you want to make sure that you're going to be able to deliver a satisfying game experience in those four hours, you know, especially if you do have a lot of, you know, if you are running a, like a demo or a game that maybe the people aren't going to be as familiar with the rules. Right. And you know, that, that makes me think of something else here too, is we're going to have um, little, little things we're giving out for uh, GMs. If you run a game, you have a chance to win something. If you put in time, you know, volunteer time as a GM, if you put in 12 hours over the weekend, at the end of the weekend, we're going to give you the money back for your badge. Oh, cool. Same thing with just plain old volunteers. We're always looking for volunteers. Um, if you put in 12 hours as a volunteer, you're going to get your badge back at the end of the weekend. So it's, um, you know, we're kind of, we're really working to bring and make volunteering worth it, make running games worth it so that we can offer more than we did last year. Last year... Evercon offered 69 events. That was it. Now, that sounds like a lot, but it's really not when you look at, you know, other conventions, even uh, the same size as Evercon, which is about 1,200 people. Um, when you break that down, 1,200 people, 69 events, that just, the numbers don't work out. So, you you know, um, because we were tied to a school, people would come and I'm guessing, you know, sit around a lot, look through the vendor's room. We'll have a vendor room. Look through the artists. We're going to have artists again this year. But we want to have more stuff to offer to more people. So that if we have 1,200 people walk through, they can do something every hour of the day if they so wish. 
every day of the three days, you know? So Evercon is going to be experiencing a new beginning, but something else that also has beginnings or is a new beginning is starting up a campaign. And that is the topic that we'd like to talk about today. And I'd like to tell you what made me decide to tackle this as a topic. Okay. Uh, A lot of you remember my friend Dawn. She has been a guest on my show many times. She helped us with the 100th episode. And well, Dawn has decided that she wanted to try her hand at running a campaign because she had some friends that were uh, interested in learning role-playing games. They really didn't have a lot of experience with it. So she is going to start to run a 3.5 campaign. And since she hasn't really done a lot of game mastering, you know, we talked a little bit last night because she wanted to get some ideas for how to start a campaign. So that's what I'd like to talk a little bit about for this episode. Talk about some ideas that or maybe some methods we've used, or maybe methods we've seen for starting a campaign. So we're not really going to focus on planning an overall arc for a campaign. Like, okay, you're starting in this village in the middle of nowhere, and by the end of the campaign, you are going to be on the ninth level of hell fighting Asmodeus and Tiamat at the same time. No, we're not planning the overall arc there. We're thinking about... Just, I don't want to be a part of that battle, Al. <laughs> what, Asmodeus and Tiamat? I don't want to be on either side of that battle, because I don't want to deal with trying to keep all that straight as a GM. <laughs> and I sure as heck don't want to be there as, as a player, because I'm going to die real quick. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've always wondered about the pronunciation of that, because the in first edition, back when they did have the demons and the devils in the monster manual, yep. we always called, pronounced it Asmodeus. But mm-hmm. I guess it's actually pronounced Asmodeus, because the have you ever seen the cartoon Redwall? It's based on a series of books. No, it's actually pretty good. I mean, we've it went for I think like two seasons. We've seen you know both the the first season and part of the second season. Essentially, it's a fantasy type game, except it has animals as the main characters. So I guess you could say it's kind of like. Uh, that old game Bunnies and Burrows or like Watership Down, except okay. the animals in this in this world actually wear clothes and they they stand upright so they're using weapons. So and, kind of more like uh, an American tale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like an American tale if it was in a medieval fantasy type world. Right, but I mean that kind of a, that kind of a uh, humanization of of animals. Exactly. So. And okay. I believe there is a game, I think it's called Iron Claw, where you do actually play anthropomorphic animals. But there was a, a snake that I remember appeared in one episode, and he pronounced the, his name, he said, was Asmodeus. So that's why I was wondering, okay, have, have, have we been pronouncing that name incorrectly all these years? But Most likely. But anyways, so... <laughs> Yeah, we're not talking about fighting Asmodeus, uh, though I will neither confirm nor deny that any of my old campaigns in high school did involve fighting Asmodeus and Tiamat. We're going to be focusing specifically on some ways to start a campaign. And, of course, there's always the old standby. In a tavern? Yes, you, you got a bunch of people sitting in a tavern and then something happens. Yep, yep. So, you know, and, and I think we've probably all used that one. I know I'm guilty of it. It's real. It makes it real easy to get a group together or even better. You go, okay, you guys have all, especially if you're not doing a first level campaign, if it's like a second or third level start, you can be like, okay, you guys all got back from your first one, you know, from your first adventure. You guys are sitting around the table right now. You're all having a drink, celebrating, and then XYZ happens. Exactly. And I mean, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with the whole, okay, you're in a tavern, but there's also the question, I mean, what do you prefer to do? Do you prefer to have all of your characters assuming that they know each other, or do you prefer to have it where, like, they're all perfect strangers? Well, that's that's an interesting question, Um, and, and it's a good question, and I'll tell you how I deal with it. I'm a big guy. I want you to write a background, Okay. So I will tell my players almost 90% of the time, if not more, that 
I don't care if you know each other. I don't care if you don't know each other. I said, if you guys want to know each other, when you're writing your backgrounds, talk a little bit. You know, tell me how you know each other. If you don't want to know each other, that's fine, too, because I'm going to railroad you all into knowing each other. Yep. And I, I really try not to railroad people, but... For getting a group together, I, I'll railroad you. Or a lot of times players will just naturally flow together because they're like, oh, we're here to play together. So, you know, they're not going to be like, well, my character wouldn't take part in this because they're killing kobolds and I'm awful good. And, okay, so don't take part in killing the kobolds, but get in there and stop them from killing the kobolds that, you know, might just be on a mission of mercy. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and I mean, I personally, usually I do prefer to have it that, okay, I assume all your characters know each other because, you know, if these are your friends or at least people that you are on friendly acquaintance with, that's going to make it easier for you to decide, okay, why is my wizard going to follow this fighter that I've never met? Why am I going to follow him into the dungeon of slow and painful death? You know, if if he's my friend and I can rely on him to protect me, then, yeah, I could see following this fighter into this dungeon. Whereas if it's like, okay, we're sitting in a tavern and here's a perfect stranger that I've never met in my life, you know, both in fantasy and reality, you might think, okay, am I really going to just trust this person I've never met before? Ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. Yeah. Ooh, pick me. Yes. Yes, uh, Chad. I know I know how to I know how to get over that question every time. Okay. Money. Offer them gobs and gobs of gold. That could backfire though. I mean, you know, you do have people who enjoy playing the greedy backstabbing characters who'll be like, Okay, yeah, I'll keep you alive long enough, but eventually I'm gonna slit your throat and then take your money when I have a chance. Well, yes, there is that, but you tantalize with money. You say, all right, one, okay, okay, let me, let me take a step back on this. One way I like to get groups together is, you know, you, you've got your group. They don't, nobody knows each other. Only a couple people know each other, right? They all get this mysterious letter that say, meet me, X, whoever, whoever me is, the, the protagonist of the story most of the time. Meet me here at this time to discuss, you know, this opportunity. So then you've got all six of your players showing up, right? And you say to them, I've chosen you because of your talents and your skills and your ability to do what I need you to do. And, you know, always flatter the characters early on because people like that. They like to hear that their skills and their talents are what you're looking for. Then you lay out what you want them to do. And then to make it nice, you lay some money out there too. You go, okay, each of you will receive 100 gold pieces upon completion of this. But to get you started, since we know that, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, here's 10 gold, you know, here's 10 gold as a group. So when it's done, you'll get another 90 gold, but this 10 gold will get you, you know, it'll get you uh, anything you need, anything that you couldn't get, you know, with your starting gold kind of thing. They still have to be frugal because it's usually six guys trying to split 10 gold, but they can get those things. They can get extra rations. They can get a riding horse if they need to, that kind of thing. See yes. what I'm saying? Yeah, and one place that I think you could always draw inspiration from I used to run uh, games for RPGA, Role Playing Game Association, back when it was in uh, at Gen Con. Okay. And one of the things that I liked about some of their adventures is it was usually set up for about, you know, six, seven people. And they would give you the character sheets, and the character sheet would list how your character viewed all of the other characters. Okay. So that could be something that you might want to try as well, where you encourage the, the players. It's like, okay, maybe you might start the game like, okay, you've got, maybe I'm playing a fighter and you're playing a 
I don't know, you like, well, you said you like playing fighters most, but thieves, you also like playing thieves. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a thief player. Exactly. So maybe uh, we might say that, okay, as a way to get our two characters to have some sort of common interest, maybe my fighter character, his, you know, girlfriend or wife or child was was kidnapped and your character is a thief, you've got your connections in the underworld and, you know, maybe you've also got, you know, someone uh, your char- who is important to your character who is also kidnapped. So, mm-hmm. you know, we realize that our characters kind of need each other because as a thief, you realize that you need a big hulking fighter to help you bust some heads. And as a fighter, I realize that I need someone who's got the intel and I also need someone who maybe can, you know, break us into areas that we're not supposed to be in, you know, we're not supposed to go into. Right. So, yeah. And that's a good way. That's, that's, that's actually something I've never thought of, but that's kind of a brilliant way to, to pull that, that need and that use together, even though it's not necessarily what, you know, X, Y, and Z. Like I, I, being the rogue, would never hang out with you, the fighter, because you scare the hell out of me. And I'm afraid you're going to lose your temper at some point and just kill me because I said the wrong thing. And, you know, you as the fighter don't want to hang out with me, the rogue, because I got sticky fingers and and your, you know, your money pouch might disappear or whatever, you know. There's these, you know, like hangs with like kind of thing. Exactly. And like, just to give you an example, um, there was an RPG, a event I was running. It was in the, I don't remember the name of the adventure, but it was in the Al Qadim setting. And there were two characters in there where it, they were written to have this interesting interaction with each other. One was a halfling thief named Half, um, Half Luck Dune Duster. And then one of the other player characters, I believe, was a half ogre. And the one, if the two characters are playing the relationship correctly, it's like the, this ogre, half ogre is basically bullying this poor halfling into kind of being his, his servant. And the reason is because the half ogre realizes that the halfling is currently in possession of a very expensive and rare jewel that he stole from some merchant or whatever. And I rem- one of the things I do remember is on the character for the halfling, he's like, if he calls me no luck one more time, I swear I'm going to slit his throat. But, you know, it was I really like how RPGA did that. Now, this approach works really well for the short, like, four or five hour game sessions that you would do at a convention. But I could see that as also being very helpful for a long-term campaign. And sometimes, if you're lucky, it even unfolds naturally. I remember when my friend Casey and I, we were, when I was running a Marvel superheroes campaign, when we were first creating our characters and before we began the initial encounter, they decided that they were going to have it that their two characters knew each other. Um, her and there's a, there was another young lady in my group named Katie. So Katie and Casey decided that their characters knew each other because they got their powers from the same freak accident that involved uh, the special sauce at McDonald's and a lightning bolt. Uh, don't ask. I think I've heard enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they. I, I really liked that. I mean, it, and so those two characters you know, really worked closely during the course of the campaign. And it really helped during the initial stages of the campaign because it started out, there were five players and there was this one character in our group. He, his player, he always kind of kept his character separate from the rest of the group. So it took us a while to kind of work him into the actual group itself. Yeah. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. If there's somebody who's slow to integrate, you know, it's just a matter of that's more the DM's job to keep him on the fringes until he finally integrates himself into the party. Or, as I see it happen more often, the party integrates him into itself. Yep. And what I mean by that is instead of him looking for the party, the party starts looking for him. 
Yeah, and that's what happened in that particular Marvel superheroes adventure, where eventually the rest of the group managed to to seek him out, and they're like, look, we keep running into each other, and it seems that we have some common goals, so let's work together. And eventually we they did manage to get him to, you know, the, the, the character to work more closely with the group. So I know I've talked about that particular Marvel superheroes campaign here and there, but it was just probably one of the most memorable campaigns I've ever ran. Yeah. Like, um, you know, as far as like interaction amongst characters, not too long ago, actually one of the groups I, I play with, not one that I run for, but when I play with, I was playing a half orc fighter type. Okay. And I was the last surviving member. It was a fifth edition game, so this kind of happened through the the background stuff. But I was the last surviving member of the Scorpion Clan, okay, a clan of uh, of barbarians and fighters and that kind of stuff. So one of the other players was playing a druid, and he had been kicked out of the clan, so he was no longer technically a member of the Scorpion Clan. So. But he was my uncle. He was my mother's brother. Okay. So I sought him out. Then this was done in our backgrounds. I sought him out and found, and found him. And I was still young, as in like 17, 18 years old. So I would ask him for approval on everything. So throughout the game, he's this old drunk, right? And I'm this young, bright eyed, you know, wide eyed. Now I'm in the big world kind of thing. And I would be like, so uncle, does, is it okay if I do this? Or uncle, can I do that? And I would spend my own money on his booze because I thought that's why he allowed me to keep asking all these questions. And, you know, just that interaction between the two of us and then the group as a whole, you know, it started out just the two of us. And then pretty soon, you know, this other player was giving me, advice as well and pretty soon i'm like well i don't always have to ask uncle i can ask this guy too you know and actually develop this character into something more than just this naive wide-eyed oh my god i have to ask everybody everything to make sure i'm doing it right kind of character into this young fighter that could not only hold his own in battle but could start to hold his own in the world at large so, you know, and, and I think that kind of interaction amongst players, and that's one of the reasons I push for backgrounds, is that interaction can start before you ever sit down around the table. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and so it was one of those things, of course, you, having characters write a background, I mean, I personally don't require them to make like a, you know, a five page, you know, short book about what their character's been through before meeting up with the party, but it is nice to have a little bit of background because not only does that help shape some of the inner party relationships, but it also gives the game master something to work with. Right. And that's the exact reason I use the background. And the little thing I will do in games where XP is granted, I will say, if you write a background, well, okay, I'll say, I require you to write a background. Then based on how well it's written, what it gives me to work with, and I'm not expecting them to give me blatant like, oh, I made Bob the farmer next door really mad at me and he's been chasing me down for three months now. You know, I don't expect that kind of stuff, but anything that I can work with, I will give them an amount of XP. You know, it might be 50 XP, it might be 100 XP, but... It gives them a little incentive to write the background, too. Otherwise, what good does it do them to write the background? You know what I mean? Yep. And you make a good point when you bring up XP because another thing Dawn was asking about, when do you think is the best time to act, to give experience points out? Because she's seen some people who they give out XP after each battle um, where <laughs> I personally... <laughs> Pardon? I said that's wrong. <laughs> I agree with you. I prefer to do it at the end of the night. I have tried it where you give it at the end of each combat. But the problem is then the minute somebody levels, you, it, you're done for 20 minutes. Like, right. all right, I just gained a level. Okay, let's see. What feet do I gain? Now I got to spend, you know, 20 minutes looking through my 50 rule books to decide which feet I want to use. And, yep. and, you know, and then, yeah, you spend a while updating your character sheets. So. And the other drawback to that is if you do it like that, 
and let's say they hit that that level at you know in game time noon, right? If you read the rules, it says until you sleep a full night's sleep, whatever that is, whether you know it's an eight hour sleep or four hour meditation or whatever, you don't uh, you don't actually level until you do that. Really is is that which game is that in? That is third 3.5 at least. Okay, yeah, I don't have as much experience with 3.5, so that's why I never heard that rule before. But oh, so yeah. it's like, then what do you do? Do you do you just kind of like rush through the rest of the day so that whoever leveled, because you know in most games now level they all level at the same level. Yeah. So as long as everybody's there all the time, they're all going to level at the same time. Yeah, because that's one of the things that could be kind of tricky about some of the pre 3.5 versions of D and D, you know, the fighter was usually a level or two ahead of everyone while the wizard was usually one level behind. So that is one thing I do like about third edition on how, you know, everyone does use the same XP chart. So it's like, okay, we have 8,000 XP now. Okay. We all know we're at this level. It's not like, okay, I'm the thief. So I'm now, you know, two levels ahead of the wizard and so on. Right, yeah, so, and I mean, and even things like Pathfinder, where they have there, there's three different tracks. Sort of say you can do uh, fast leveling, normal leveling, or um, slow leveling, and it's just the number of XP you need for each level. Okay. So, I mean, most people go down that medium track, and that's a lot like your D and D levels. You know, one thousand, two thousand, five thousand. You know, okay. so it's pretty standard. And, of course, there's always the approach that you mentioned a few episodes ago where you're like, well, you reach level two when the needs of the story dictate that you reach level two. So, I don't know, would you recommend that approach for a beginning game master, or do you think that's probably better for a more advanced game master? Well, it depends on the game master. It depends on how good of a of a grasp they have on the game they're going to run. If they're going to run it out of a out of a book, if they're going to use a pre-canned, as I call them, you know, a, a module, then no, don't don't do it that way because you're going to be fighting the module then because either you're going to let them level up too quickly, and then the module is not going to be a challenge, or you're not going to level them up quickly enough, and then the module is going to be a beast and kill them. So modules are written in a way with XP based around the fact that you need to level at certain times. So that by by doing it that way, the book has taken that out of your hands. It tells you when they need the level to go with the story. So now if they're writing their own campaign, if it's something that they're putting together of their own demise, they know kind of where the campaign is going. They know kind of where what level the the uh the fights are going to be at and that kind of stuff then by all means, it, it's a lot easier, I find, to to do it that way because I don't use pre-canned. I've tried it in the past, and I find it too constricting in the rule set and not varied enough for the world you're in. You know, it, it takes a snapshot of the world, but anything outside of that, if, if, the, if the group wanders the wrong way, you have one or two choices. You can make it up on the fly, which is fine. You can do that. But that's going to offset the XP that's available in the campaign, and then that's going to get you to the end where they're a lot more strong. They're they're a lot stronger than they need to be at the end of the module. Or you have to you have to put them on the railroad and bring them back to the campaign, you know, in a in a very forceful manner. And I know a lot of gamers, even though they know in a way they're being railroaded. I mean. It's a GM telling a story and railroading you through that story. You know, I've heard I've heard GMs go, I don't railroad people. I've heard people go, yes, I do railroad them. <laughs> but the truth is we all railroad to a certain degree. It's just how well you are at keeping the fact that you're railroading your people from them. Exactly. And, I mean, I my personal opinion is you need to take the approach that's going to work best for you. But... I think that for a beginning game master, then usually giving out XP at the end of the night is probably the best be- best way to yeah. go. Yeah, I would agree with that, Al. So now when, let's talk about the first adventure that you're going to start with the, the characters on. Now, there's, of course, different types of adventures. There's dungeon crawls. There's 
you know, wilderness exploration, uh, just to name a few. So, uh, you know, two anyway. But well, escapes, you can do a cityscape. Uh, you can do castle crawls, as I call them. <laughs> yep, or you know, maybe you could do something like a patrol or a guard-type mission where maybe you're starting out because you've been you know, drafted into the king's army because there's a group of orcs that are approaching. And, you know, so your first adventure is you're patrolling the area around the king's castle because you're trying to keep the land safe from orcs. Or along similar lines, caravan guard. That's another thing that I've seen used for first adventures. And I think that's also a good start where, um, you know, again, you're there's this merchant who's like, well, I'm going to be making this journey to this distant city and I need people to protect my, my, my caravan. And that's what the players are hired for. So for those types of adventures, we've just briefly discussed, which ones do you like to use for an intro adventure for a group of new or fairly inexperienced players? Usually what I like to do is I like to do the the lord of the area, the king, the duke, or whoever. Whoever's in power in an area calls a group of players in, says, this is what I need you for. We've been watching you. I always love doing this because it makes people <laughs> Hey, let the – you know what they say? Let the players write 90% of the campaign with their paranoid conjecture. Exactly. So – so we've been watching you. We know what your skill sets are. You are our first choice. And because you are our first choice, we are offering you XYZ. Now, I did do a similar start with a group of players that I have played with for a long time. And the way I changed it, I said, okay, you're the fourth set of people we're sending out. <laughs> Three sets have gone and have not come back. So, yes, you kind of wonder, okay, what happened to adventuring party number one, two, and three? Right. And then I said, on top of that, I said, and because they've we, we, we paid them up front, we're only paying you a quarter up front. You'll get the rest when you come back alive. Yeah. And honestly, I could see that working a little better if you're going to start your players at maybe like third or fourth level. Because, you know, I mean, if they're just starting at first level, it's like, okay, you might think, well, let's see if uh, three adventuring groups went on this dangerous mission, you know, what chance do we have? So right. that's where I could see it working for a more experienced party like that. Right. Yeah, so at least that's how I would see it. Because, um, I mean, I usually prefer to start my characters at level one. But sometimes, yeah, you might want to maybe skip ahead and start at like level three or four because... This way you can assume your characters are somewhat seasoned adventurers. And not only that, it gives them a little bit more survivability, which is always good if you are using new players. But then again, if you do start them out at a a little higher level, that could make character generation take a little longer because now they have like three or four levels worth of stuff they have to worry about instead of just initial character creation. So I know I guess it can work either way. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think my, my favorite way that I ever started a campaign, now granted this was for a group of mine that had been playing for a while, is they rolled up their characters. In this one, I forced everybody to know each other. They had, they had worked together for a while. I think they were level four. And after all the characters were made and all the backgrounds were made and read, and I looked at them all, and I we got there that first night, everybody sitting around the table, and I said, roll initiative. Everybody kind of looked at me, and I'm like, all right, so what would you get for initiative? And they're still looking at me, and I'm like, roll initiative. <laughs> so I just started them out in the middle of a combat. Well, that's interesting. I suppose that's one way to do it. Uh, so what was the combat? Um, It was a relatively simple combat. I made it that way on purpose. But it brought them into the fact that, you know, we've been working together for a while. We have done these things together before. So it was meant to make them think, you know, it's just another day. We're just, you know, we're doing this because this is what we do. I would have to say probably one of my favorite ways to start a campaign is using a more wilderness-based adventure. 
specifically caravan guard duty. Now, I know it sounds boring, but I think it does have some good potential, especially for first-time or inexperienced players. Because you think about it, okay, you've got this merchant. He's going to this exotic-sounding city far away. Well, adventurers adventure. That's yep. why they call adventures. They go on adventures. So for characters who do have the desire and the inclination to go travel to distant lands, caravan duty is kind of a sweet deal. You get to go to this faraway land and you're getting paid to do it. Yep. And usually getting fed, so you don't have to worry about that. Yep. So, yeah. And also, not only that, it's you know, fairly straightforward because, okay, you basically got to get them from point A to point B. And I think it can be good for teaching some of the fundamentals, especially since, since you're not going to be in like a cramped dungeon or mm-hmm. like an underground cavern, you don't have to worry as much about things like, okay, we've got, you know, a fighter with a long sword and a shield and a fire fighter with a halibird there in a, a hallway. Are they going to be able to work side by side without killing each other and, you know, fighting the, while fighting the enemies? Right. Or you don't have to worry about something like, okay, you've got the thief stuck in the back and he wants to go around to backstab someone, but he can't because, you know, he's got three fighters and a cleric in the way. Right. So with a wilderness type adventure, they're nice because they're usually they're going to be in a lot wider area. So while you still can use the the terrain to your advantage, you're not dealing with the cramped, uh, limited quarters of a dungeon that you know a traditional dungeon crawl would force you to deal with. Right. Yeah. And and with it being on the open like that in the wilderness, the range of enemies you can put against them too is a lot bigger now too. You're not stuck to the molds and the, and the jellies and the ochres and the whatever, the tiny dwelling, you know, cave dwelling creatures. Exactly. Cause yeah, you can fight orcs and goblins and kobolds just about anywhere, but you can't really fight a dragon in a, in a dungeon. Right. Well, you could, but it's going to be bad for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and still, you got to kind of think the logistics of it. Okay, how did this dragon get in, you know, the bottom floor of this 10-floor dungeon, you know? Right. So, of course, dungeon crawls are always considered one of the classic types of adventures you can take players on. How do you feel about using that for new or inexperienced players? Well, let me let me preface that by saying... I'm not a big fan of dungeon crawls, per se. That being said, one of my favorite early campaigns was we were in a dungeon. And it all started out, we got hired to go down into the dungeons and kill rats. Okay? So, first of all, we started off just killing swarms of rats. Which, if you know anything about D&D, swarms are a pain in the rear. <laughs> they're, they're hard to beat because it doesn't matter. You can kill three individual rats. It doesn't really hurt the swarm. And then from swarms, of course, you know, as we got deeper, we found bigger rats. And then you're getting into your dire rats and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, it moved on to other stuff. But the, D, the GM who ran that was a guy who, you know, that was his thing. He ran dungeon crawls. I tend not like to like dungeon crawls just because they get very tedious to me. But for a starter, for part of a starting campaign, yeah, you know, they get hired by the city to be rat killers or they get hired by the city to go down and clean out, you know, these annoying kobolds who are sneaking up through the sewers and stealing jewelry from the rich people. You know, something like that as part of a campaign, I think it's fine. I think it's a good idea, in fact. I don't know if I would necessarily always recommend it for a group of play- people who've never played before, but it does teach something to inexperienced gamers. I mean, since you are working within the cramped confines of a dungeon, you do have to be more mindful of your area of effect type spells. Yeah. And you also have to be very wary of your positioning and things like, you know, okay, I'm going to move past this orc, is it going to get an attack of opportunity on me? Yes, it is, because you are in cramped quarters. 
But my other thing that um, I'll teach people really fast is, you know, somebody will go, I pull out my longbow. And I go, no, you don't. You don't have room down here for a longbow. A longbow is six feet tall. You're five foot eight. And what did I tell you when you walked in? That you were crouched over. This brings me to another topic. Now, there are a couple of different ways you can play the game. Some people prefer to use the mind's eye where, you know, you don't have miniatures and stuff in front of you. It's like, okay, the game master describes you are in a 20 by 20 foot room and there's a, a, a pentagram drawn in the middle and there's a dark robed figure who's chanting phrases to deities who are best left not thought of. And he's got three guards standing around him and, you know, but you're not actually putting miniatures and stuff down. So, you know, you're not actually using game pieces to move around. Or the other option is some players really like to go wild with the, you know, with, with the miniatures and stuff. I mean, I like using miniatures and our, the current game master that I'm running, that is running the current game I'm in. He uses one of those rollout mats where, you know, you just take like the wet erase markers and, you know, draw the, you know, the map on there. And uh, my friend Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast, not only does he have an extensive collection of miniatures, but he also has a lot of the Dwarven Forge scenery. So usually when we game at his house, if we're like in a wilderness setting, he'll usually use, because, you know, Wizards did release those dungeon tiles. Right. So he likes using those for outdoor adventures. And then usually when we are doing like the interior of a dungeon, he'll generally use the his Dwarven Forge 3D scenery. So which do you prefer? Do you think that it's when you're first starting out, do you think it's good to have that visual aid or do you prefer to do the whole mind's eye thing instead? Well, I've always been, I think we've talked about this before. I'm a mind's eye kind of guy. I like it because again, I can use that to fit the story. If I draw everything out and I replace miniatures and stuff and somebody goes, how far away am I? Well, you look down, you're like one, two, three, you're four, you're four squares away. So you're 20 feet away. And they're like, oh, well, then I can't do whatever X, you know, or if they go, you know, I'd really like to do this. How far am I from that, from that creature? And I can go, you know, knowing that, okay, if they want to do a pounce, they got to be within 10 feet so they can, you know, I'm like, you're 10 feet away. You know, can I move an attack yet? Sure, you've got plenty of space. You're 20 feet away. You can move up to 30 feet. So, yeah, you're fine. You know, and that works that way. Where I tend to get in trouble with Mind's Eye is when you have the player that goes, well, are we flanking them? Do we get backstab? And you're like, well, you know, in your head you're thinking, I never really thought about that. Uh, yes, sure, you get back. You, get, you can have flanking. Yeah, and another thing, of course, to keep in mind is when you get high enough where they start having area of effect spells. Because this is where, I mean, I think the Mind's Eye works a little better for, like, new players because you're not going to have as many area of effect type spells. Right. Because if you're just doing Mind's Eye, let's say you've got a party of five adventurers fighting a group of ten goblins. And the wizard is like, I'm casting Fireball. How do you determine how many of those goblins you can hit if you don't have miniatures and stuff that are representing where everyone is? So, I mean, that's why I think as you start to get higher in level, it can be very helpful to have some sort of physical representation showing where the enemies are and where all the players are. So, like I said, when someone does eventually whip out that fireball spell, they know where they have to place it so they don't incinerate their allies. Right. And usually when it gets to stuff like that, I will say, so you want to place it so you don't hit any of your own people. And they'll say yes or no, you know, depending on how intense it is, they might go, well, it might hit somebody, but we got to do this. Or I'll say, you want to set, you want to set it up in a way that I say, well, you can't really do it. You can do it with only getting, you know, you might hit Bob if you do it this way, but you'll get six of the goblins and Bob, or you can do it this way and you're going to get four of the goblins and then you're not going to hit anybody. Okay. And then they can make that decision. 
Okay, and yeah, that's an, and that's a, a really good way to do it. And what I usually prefer to do when I'm game mastering, I usually like sketch out the dungeon on just like a piece of notebook paper. But I usually don't, you know, I use miniatures, but I usually don't use like the scenery or the rollout maps. Sometimes yeah. I'll use just like a plain chessboard, just so you know you have squares, so you can see where everyone is. But again, I tie, I usually keep it more free and loose where it's like, okay, you have the miniatures placed down so the wizard can tell if I put my fireball here, maybe I'll only get four goblins, but I'm not going to kill any of my allies. But if I put it here, you know, okay, yeah, I'll get more goblins, but then, as you were saying, Bob the fighter is also going to be, be caught in the blast as well. Right. Um, and then I usually, if I'm not using any sort of sectioned off plane surface, I tend to go more like, okay, if a fighter's like, I want to go attack that character over there. I just kind of look at, okay, what kind of character, what's your movement? And then I decide, okay, yes, you can make it and you can still attack or, okay, you can move up to him, but you won't be able to attack in this round. Right. And it also does come in handy when you do have people who do want to know about things like flanking bonuses and, you know, attacks of opportunity and, you know, is the thief in a position where he can backstab that ogre and not be seen? No, yeah, I totally get it. I mean, there's, there's pros and cons to both sides of this. Just like anything anything we talk about, there's there's more than one side to each one of these. And, you know, the guys that play with me, they're used to the way I run combat, so it's not a big deal. But you're right, when I when I do run at conventions, though, I do I have a rollout map and I have got the, the wet erase markers and I do use them in convention spots because I don't know who I'm going to be playing with. Yep. And that's the nice thing about when you are running a long term campaign, you have the luxury of knowing who you're going to game with and, you know, knowing your group, which I think any experienced game master will tell you that really whenever you are planning a campaign, knowing your group and their general temperament and their general behaviors, it usually can make things a lot, lot easier. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I I know you've mentioned before that you usually don't like running the pre-written adventures. You usually prefer to do things kind of spur of the moment and make up your own adventures. But in all the years that you've been role-playing, have you encountered an adventure that you think is really good for starting players? And it can be for any system. Maybe this is an adventure you ran, or maybe it's an adventure that you that you played, but you didn't actually run. So what would you recommend as some good starting intro adventures? Ooh, that's 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 a tough one. Like you said, I don't do a lot of canned adventures. Um, I I have played in some over the years. I think one I can think of off the top of my head is a Pathfinder um, set. It's um, it's actually a six book book set, and I will only give praise to the first book. It's the uh, Kingmaker series. The first book is, I think, levels one through five or one through six, something like that. And in the Kingmaker series, the whole idea is you start out as these lowly adventures, and by the end, you're running your kingdom, okay? So it's okay. A, it's an arc like that. The, the first book was great because you were out, you were adventuring, you were finding different things. You were find, What you were really doing, in, in retrospect, is you were surveying where you wanted to put your your manor house, okay, your your castle. But so you we, we did this whole area, we raised up, we got to about fifth level or so, and then because we had cleaned out this area of all the bad creatures and this stuff, the king of the realm gave us this land as our, as our, you know, our duchy, whatever you want to call it. Your reward. Yes, our reward. So we we then built our manor house, and this is where the series, to me, kind of really got off of a role-playing game and became more of an accounting book. Okay. <laughs> then you were stuck. You had to sit there, and not only did you have to try to go on an adventure and everything, but you had to try to figure out how to make sure that there was enough money in the coffers 
to make sure that, you know, you have money for this and money to pay this guy to do that. And it became more of an accounting game in, ah. in my estimation. It, it, it kind of lost the fact that it was a role-playing game and became more of more of a day-to-day balance sheet working out so that you could have your fun and go adventure. Yeah, and it's like if I wanted to do that, I'd balance my checkbook. Right, but the first book was was done very well. So that was a good one for starters. Now, this may not sound like a starter campaign, but I, I don't believe it's very high level when you begin it, and that's Tomb of um, Tomb of Horrors. Uh, Tomb of Horrors is more of a mid-level. I think it's like about 10 to 13. Is it that high? Yeah, it's Tomb of Horrors. It, it, I would not recommend that for uh, beginning characters. Are, are you thinking like um, Keep on the Borderlands, maybe, or In Search of the Unknown? Maybe. Um, I know Keep on the Borderlands is a good one. That's yeah. that's I mean that's the that's the Wizards of the Coast. That's their staple starter campaign. Yeah, and I would say that the nice thing about Keep on the Borderlands that makes it a good starter adventure is you've got that keep that can act as your central base and it does have both the wilderness exploration aspects to it, but it also has the dungeon crawl aspects. So you might want to maybe focus on some of the more wilderness aspects of it until your characters are more comfortable with the game mechanics. Then you can start throwing them into the caves where now they have to worry about things like, okay, how many of us can can uh, fight at once in this passage? You know, is it so narrow that we have to go single file or can we march you know, two or three of us abreast and still be able to to fight and maneuver. Um, but I would have to say one of the best entry-level adventures I've ever seen, there's a supplement that I mention every now and then for basic D&D called Tall Tales of the Wee Folk. Um, it was written around the time of second edition, though, so they do have information in there on how to convert it to a second edition adventure, which really, you think about it, converting anything from basic to first or second generally is not that difficult. Right. But the thing I liked about it is there were several encounters in that adventure where the enemies clearly outclassed you. So if you took... It was written for like first to third level characters. So even if you took the third level characters and tried to tackle that opponent straight on, you were going to be wiping your brains off of the floor. So it, it really made you kind of think and take more creative approaches to handling some of those encounters. And there's also some good uh, role-playing encounters in there. And I just remember, I just realized I just forgot to tell you the name of the adventure in this book. Because the Tall Tales of the Wee Folk had two books in it. There was the player's book, which told you how to use fairies and woodland creatures as player characters. But there was a second Game Master's book that had several adventures in it. And the one that I'm specifically referring to is called The Lost Seneschal, where you are recruited by the local baron to go find his missing tax collector. And unlike the other adventures in this book, most of them anyway, it wasn't written for a group of like sprites and leprechauns and pixies. It was actually designed primarily for a group of fighters or clerics and elves and so on. So because of that fact that it did have some good combat, but it also had some good role-playing encounters, that makes it a really memorable adventure. But I think it's also a really good adventure for starting a campaign as well. Okay. Any closing thoughts on this topic, Chad? I just always encourage people to try GMing. Uh, you know, especially if you've got a, stand, a group that you've been playing with for a while and there's only one person that GMs or something like that. It never hurts to have another person that knows how to GM and is willing to do it. I always say, give it a shot. The worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to find out you don't like doing it. Yep, that's true. It's unlikely that if you do a bad job GMing your first time that your player, your friends are going to hate you for the rest of your life. So, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's, it, uh, it's just something I think everybody should do. If you're going to be, if you're going to role play, you should know how to GM. 
Yep. I mean, even even if you don't like it, you should know how to do it. That is true. Well, I think we're going to call this topic to a close. So, Chad, we already know that we can find you when we if we look up Evercon, but where else can people find you? Well, you can find my uh, daily affirmation. Well, not daily. How how do I put this? You can find my uh, your writings and ramblings. Writings and ramblings of affirmation at. Uh, www.nuosu.blogspot.com. Um, I and a couple of my friends have a three-time weekly blog uh, just with, uh, I don't know, there's there's different things on there. There's tips about uh, weight loss, about exercise, about dealing with stress, dealing with everyday life. It's just um, hopefully you can go out there, read something, and go, you know, I, I get it. That, that, that sounds like me. <laughs> Yep. So and, check it out. Good. And, of course, you can find me at POIGamestudio.com. You can look up Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. And feel free to stop by, like the page, leave comments. So with that said, we hope you found our advice and some of our experiences today useful. So have a good morning or evening or afternoon, whatever it is, whatever you are, and happy gaming.